I feel so lucky to be able to do what I do. It's majestic. It's like throwing yourself into a big, epic TV adventure. You're feeling alive and there's such highs, there's such lows. That was Vicki Romanin, and this is episode 16 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Vicki Romanin is a firecracker of a lady runner from Whistler, B.C., In her words, she is a grateful, silvering, mom, wife, retiree with a growing passion for mountains that has just turned 60, and she's showing no signs of slowing down. Although she has a lifetime of running experience, over the last decade, Vicki has tackled some increasingly difficult and impressive races, including the Boston Marathon, Cascade Crest 100 Miler, Fat Dog 120, and Tour de Jean. Even COVID didn't slow her down this year as she decided to do her own Whistler Alpine Meadows run just for fun. No marked course, no official aid stations, just her and a few pacers. In this episode, we talk about passion and planning, overcoming adversity and stress fracture, the value of good coaching, and the secrets to longevity in running. As you listen to Vicki talk, you can hear the intensity and passion in her voice as she speaks about the mountains, the trails, and her intense gratitude for her continued ability to experience it all in such an intimate way. We hope you are inspired by Vicki's energy as much as we were. So Vicki, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. It's so great to have you with us tonight. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Carolyn and I are really excited to talk to you because you represent basically a a type of runner that I think we all can learn from. And you've done so many amazing things in the last decade or so of your life. There's a lot to talk about, but I think I'd like to start out doing a little bit of talking myself and just tell you all how Vicky and I met. And we can just take a little walk down memory lane, Vicky. I'd love that. Yeah, to Fat Dog 2016. So it's hard to believe that was over four years ago now. It's really quite funny because I remember driving 24 hours straight from Winnipeg with these two guys that I had just met like a few months before. And we had dubbed ourselves the Manitoba Dogs for the Fat Dog Race. And incidentally, one of my teammates, Scott, he's going to be on the podcast in a few weeks as well. And we were exhausted. We were utterly exhausted. We showed up after 24 hours of driving to check in at the Manning Park Lodge with, you know, zero sleep. And we couldn't check into our room. And my two teammates, Scott and Todd, were very nervous. They were doing the 120, same as you. And I was doing a 70 miler. So it was still a few days till the race start. But I remember we were sitting on the tailgate of Todd's truck. Yes, having an adult beverage to chill out a little bit. And up ambles Vicky and Michael. (laughs) What did you think when you saw us sitting on the tailgate of our truck? (laughs) You guys were awesome. (laughs) The trio, obviously had driven a long way. You were the three musketeers, but you were the lady of the group and uh, you were instantly fantastic. 
I can say the same about you. You know, we all had a laugh. It was kind of one of those crazy moments. But I remember meeting you and Michael, but you in particular, and just immediately being like, wow, this is this is a really cool person, a cool couple. And they're important to this event. And we proceeded to finish that race. We'll get more into that later in the podcast. But I remember coming across Michael at several aid station checkpoints. I never did connect with you during the race, not until after again. But that was quite a significant event, I think, for both of us. We got to know each other a bit more virtually after that. But let's just maybe back up a little bit now. And I would like you to give us a little bit of information about your background. So where do you live? Tell us about your family and then your entry into running and particularly trail and ultra running. You know, how did your interest in this whole crazy wild sport develop? My name is Vicki. I live in Whistler and um, I've run my whole life, but when I was younger, I should say from the time I was a teen, I ran around the block because it, you know, to fit into my jeans and because right from the very beginning, I got that runner's high. It made me feel mm. really good. And as time went on and the years went on, I used it for stress relief, just part of a fairly healthy lifestyle. And as time went on, um, eventually, uh, people kept asking me, have you ever done a marathon? Have you ever done a marathon? Um, have you ever competed? And I was like, no, I'm not interested in competition. Life's too busy. Life's too stressful. I don't want to do anything like that. But for my 50th birthday, I made it that bucket list thing. And I decided I was going to run a marathon, even though I had only, you know, done a 5k charity event before I'd never competed, never trained didn't have a coach, none of those things. So I walked into a um, running room, and signed up for a marathon, <laughs> bought John Stanton's book, picked a training run, sort of guessed, you know, where I should be along the line of what my finishing time might be, even though I didn't have a clue, and uh, trained and did the marathon. So um, that was my first, you know, training experience, and I absolutely loved the marathon that experience of um, running with a pack, the acceleration, the endorphins, uh, everything about it, the, the planning, the finishing, it was, it was awesome. I had no idea how long I should take to do it, but uh, my sister-in-law said, well, Vic, anything under four hours is really good. So I made it in just under four hours. I think it was 3.56. I was thrilled. It was, as I mentioned before, exhilarating. So I kept up with the running and I knew that I wanted to do more after that. And um, the same uh, same sister-in-law was into trail running. So she said, you know, you think road running is good. You should come out in the trails with me sometime. So I joined a couple of girls out in the trails and I really did like it. So I signed up for a trail event it was a, a Whistler 25K. It was very exhilarating. And again, in my typical fashion, I do things a little differently sometimes. And with this one, I was really excited about it. In the first 20 minutes, I managed to trip over a rock because I had no trail experience. And I fell headfirst over a cliff. I broke a front tooth, my right hand and my left toe that I smacked. <laughs> 
But you you give a whole new meaning to kissing the ground. Oh my goodness. I did. And there was only one aid station halfway through, you know, the medic kind of looked at my hand and uh, said, you know, do you want to pull out now? And I was like, no way. I mean, the endorphins were going and I really wasn't hurting. I think it was a bit of shock setting in. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I made it to the end and uh, I place first in my age group and that was even more exciting so I didn't want to leave the party and finally they shooed me out of off to the hospital and and I got it fixed and I mean I was hooked from the very beginning from then on it was just I wanted to sign up for more and do more and so my next one was a 50 miler I'm just I'm chuckling to myself because it's a different type of breed trail runners particularly even ultra trail runners but we really do like that type two fun and you're like who would think that a race that you broke a bone chipped a tooth ended up bloody and bruised was what hooked you on this whole sport absolutely you know it's it is it is funny but there's just those endorphins they are powerful getting out mm. into the trees and it's a lovely feeling and you live in Whistler now. Um, you haven't always lived there, although I think you've spent a lot of time in Whistler. Did you not live in North Van until recently? I moved from Prince George, um, British Columbia, to Whistler. We never did get rid of our house in Whistler, but we moved to Vancouver briefly. I shouldn't say briefly, for a decade. <laughs> we moved to Vancouver. And so we were kind of back and forth. Our hearts were always in Whistler, but we actually moved. Our son um, required some special schooling. He's dyslexic, so that's the reason we moved to the city. Oh, okay. I, I mentioned that just to put into context of the amazing location that you've been able to run in for the last, you know, well, for your whole life, really. But it's hard not to have endorphins when you're able to run in, in trails and even roads surrounded by the mountains and the ocean and, and all the greatness that is the West Coast. Truly, I, I have had in the last decade the best of both worlds. I've had that Vancouver, um, you know, you can run along the beach, you can run on some trails, you can run on the roads, but the weather is always pleasant. I mean, you may have dark and rain, but you don't have snow and minus 40 degrees like you do in Manitoba or you'd like you did in Prince George. So I had that that road training during the week, and then I had the skiing and the mountains for the weekends. So it's a really nice mix. I've been very lucky. Yes, you have. <laughs> very lucky. So let's just go, you know, a little bit more through your races or shall we say self-designed expeditions in the last um, little while. So you mentioned you, your race after the marathon was a 50 miler and then you've done some other pretty impressive events all over the world. Tell us a bit about some of the highlights. Okay, I've done quite a few, I guess, in the last 10 years. I did the Boston Marathon in 2012, the year that it was hot. That's a road race, obviously, not a, not a mountain running. I've done uh, the Squamish 50-50 three times. So that's an event in Squamish where, where the first event is 50 miles and the next day follows with 50 kilometers you know, Squamish has a lot of very nice, I'm going to say yummy mountain trails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've done um, the Whistler Alpine Meadow uh, runs in the fall in Whistler. 
Um, I've done the 110 kilometer. I've done the 100 miler when it was an official 100 miler. And um, just earlier this year, I did uh, my own virtual, not virtual, I actually did it, but <laughs> I was the only one who was actually entered it and planned it, executed it, um, sort of got it going. Um, I've done a run in Colorado, the Colorado Never Summer. That was 110 kilometers. The reason that one was unique was because um, the competition level's quite high. Yeah, the levels in, in the States generally are, but it was also uh, way up in altitude. So the whole event was between 10,000 and 12,000 feet. So that's a different experience than training at sea level like I like we do. I've done the Lavaredo, which is 120 kilometers in Cortina, Italy. And I have done, oh gosh, I've done Cascade Crest, which is another 100 miler down in Washington State. That was, I think, my favorite 100 miler. Done the Fat Dog. And I've done a 200 miler in Italy called the Tour de Giant or the Tour of Giants. But as I was listening to your list of really impressive races like you like to do long races I'm hearing from you but I'm also noticing that that there may be a little bit of you like to travel like these races are in amazing amazing locations is that part of how you decide on where you want to race it's just you want to see a certain part of the world not really. Um, I do it for the event more from the than the actual location, with the exception of the tour, the Tour de Jeans and um, the Lavaredo. My heritage is Italian from my father's side. So truly, that was a good way to get to Italy. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I get it. I get it. Okay. So uh, I was reading your blog and it, oh, wow, your blog was so fascinating and very, very thorough and interesting. And I just went down a very big rabbit hole reading your blog. But you mentioned uh, a lot of the challenges that you faced over the last decade and how you've used running to cope with, with some of the stress. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you've gone through in the last decade? I can, yes. Well, I've used running as... I'm going to say as a crutch for a long time, since I was in my teens. Not that I was going through, you know, much. I've got a great life, but I've always been a fairly anxious person. So running really helps. It's my form of meditation. I get a runner's high. Not everyone does. So it's it's meditation. It's, um, it's my drug, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... The last 10 years, definitely there have been some challenges for sure. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2011. Um, a couple of years later, I lost my brother. A couple of years after that, I lost my mother. There's always, you know, the background of a career, family, trying to juggle it all, trying to balance it all. And running really did uh, help me through all of that. But it can go both ways. You can you can try to get too much of your drug, and um, that can be a problem as well. Well, especially with with ultra running, it is undeniable that it attracts people with addictive personalities, right? (laughs) And you you choose your drug of choice, and many of us have chosen endorphins and serotonin as as our drugs of choice. 
you know, we all deal with stress. And now this, this year it's, it's become really apparent that, you know, people need to find ways to cope with stress, but let's just go back to this last decade and you're running and, you know, you and I have had a bit of a, a mutual experience that allowed us to bond <laughs> after we met at Fat Dog. And I didn't even know when I met you there, what you had overcome just to get to that start line of that race, right? Until afterwards. <laughs> um, and so basically, we both dealt with stress fracture in the year 2016 in our metatarsals. We yes. both had metatarsal stress fractures. And this is something we haven't talked about on this podcast before. And I think it is worth discussing. I'd like to hear a bit more about you know, your experience with stress fracture, you reached out to me when, when I mentioned I was diagnosed later that year, but can you give us a bit of background about what happened to you in your training before Fat Dog? And then we'll go from there. Absolutely. So my stress fracture was, it was stupidity on my part. I was um, going to my second Boston Marathon and my heart really wasn't in it. I was more or less accompanying a girlfriend. But I thought, you know, I'm not really into it. But if I'm going to do this, I might as well do it right. So although I'm not usually terribly competitive, for this one, I thought, I'm going to really go for it. So I talked to the coaches. And we decided that we were going to, you know, really go for speed this time. I trained very, very hard. Um, I was in the city. And... Um, Unbeknownst to me, I shouldn't have been training as much as I did on pavement because I had skied all winter and because um, I was often, you know, I felt like my feet weren't used to running on concrete because Boston is a concrete jungle. I thought that I should train as much as I could on the road, actually on the road. The coaches had mentioned that I should actually train on the track. But they just mentioned that in passing, and they just assumed that I was doing it. Instead, I was training strictly on the road. So I had no symptoms. I had no idea that there was anything going on. Just on my last long progression run, two weeks before the event, before I flew out, I hit the bottom of a hill, just a long run from Long Hill from UBC, hit the bottom and felt like an axe went through my foot. Mm. And uh, that was it. I snapped my fourth metatarsal right in half. And uh, that was it. So there's many different types of stress fracture. You know, we use the word stress fracture as a global kind of term, but it can be anything from just an, like a periostitis where the outer part of the bone becomes inflamed, and then it can progress to stress reaction, which becomes where more of the bone becomes inflamed and the bone marrow starts to become in you know you get bone marrow edema which is more what I ended up having but you had the frank like on x-ray there's a crack it <laughs> and was, it looks like somebody had taken an axe to your foot like it broke yeah. instantly yeah like With a chicken no bone snap yeah, which is undeniable. So then what happened? Like, were you booted? <laughs> it was 11 weeks of uh, of healing up. And that's exactly what happened. I was booted up. And um, so I was, there was several weeks of that. 
and the coaches. Uh, actually, a sport doc recommended uh, an instrument called the Exogen, which is, I talked to you about that as well. Yeah. Um, it's uh, a little bit out of the box, but it was to try and help the bone heal a little bit faster. Whether or not it worked, I'm not sure. I did heal nicely within 11 weeks. I probably healed within seven weeks, but they held me off for a few more weeks. Coaches designed a plan where I would um, heal up. They tried to get me on a bike. I tried the bike. That did not work. I hated it. (laughs) So I got myself to the pool and uh, learned to swim (laughs) and uh, got through the 11 weeks. And um, they kept me very busy, very, very busy. I didn't have time to lose the endorphins. Honestly, my heart was never really into this Boston Marathon, so it's not that my heart was broken. And I was just too busy, you know, getting busy for the real event, which I considered Fat Dog. I lost three races, but Fat Dog was the one that I had hoped to still be able to do in six weeks after I healed up. So what was your mental state, Vicky, through this period of time? Like you say you actually were able to keep your endorphins up. We talk about keeping your fix, right? But did you struggle at all with not being able to run, especially during such a stressful time, or were you okay? I, I was better than I thought I would be. But my coaches, my fantastic coaches were, I think they, well, they were definitely therapists for me. They kept checking in on me to make sure I was okay and that I was doing something that I I liked. Uh, for example, the bike just did not work out for me at all. <laughs> and um, they wouldn't let me cheat at all. It was just, you know, you're going to do this exactly. We're not letting you push it in any way. And I think probably I was a bit, you know, grumpy, <laughs> but, but they did keep me busy. That helped. So, well, you've mentioned your coaches a couple of times and, and we're big fans of coaches around here, as you know. Yeah. So uh, would you mind kind of expanding, like who were your coaches? How did they support you during that time? You've mentioned a few things, you know, helping you find alternative modes to keep your cardio fitness up that weren't weight bearing and all of that. But you say that they became therapists. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I have um, Eric Carter and Gary Robbins with Ridgeline Athletics as my coaches. They're my inspiration. They keep me well grounded. They keep me organized. But at that time, they were very calm. You know, this happens. We're sorry it happened, but it happens. If you're going to push it, you know, in athletics, eventually an injury will happen. Mm -hmm. We talked it through. We realized that this was definitely a misunderstanding. I was pretty embarrassed about it because they had no idea that I was putting myself through that. (laughs) Yeah. So what happened then? So you did the quick turnaround. You were able to head to Fat Dog. Did you feel ready for that race or did you feel kind of unprepared? They definitely gave me realistic expectations. They thought that my chances of actually towing the line, of actually arriving at the start were maybe 5%. Oh, wow. We only had six weeks. So, <laughs> you know what? 
if we were in a video mode right now, people would see me just shaking my head. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's amazing what, not only did you toe the line, Vicky, but you finished that freaking race like a rock star. Like, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You, you, I don't know. You suffered with the best of them. I know. Like it's, you don't finish a 120 mile race with, you know, the L of 122 mile race because they added two miles and had a ridge without a little bit of suffering, but you, you did amazing. So thank you. Thank you. They, they were really a part. They really made sure my expectations were realistic. So I felt very fortunate to start. And then they told me that all of my chances of starting were about 5%. They thought that my chances of finishing were about 1%. So you know, my expectations were not great. I went into that race with the mantra, relentless forward movement. That's what I wanted to do. And that's what I basically did. Okay. So I want to put into perspective the type of person that Vicky is, or that I got to know a little bit over the course of that year. You finished Fat Dog. We passed like ships in the night at that race. It was kind of like, here's this person. Okay. We stayed connected on social media. And then when I started to have my experience with stress reaction, so it was a more gradual process for me. I probably had it for about four months before I finally was diagnosed. Yes, physiotherapists do do the wrong thing sometimes even in their own bodies but you really reached out to me and you supported me you you gave me great words of encouragement okay you got your exogen unit from a friend yes who had used it and and gave it to you at a discount and then you just sent I don't think I you asked a thing for it she just sends me her exogen unit (laughs) In the mail, I remember sitting there, you know, in front of my Christmas tree because this was now December, and I was in this boot, and I was having the world's biggest pity party. I think you did great, Vicky, compared to me because I was a mess. I had lost my fix, and the world was over, and I was signed up for this hundred mile race, you know, four months from then, and I was having a massive pity party. It's hard. <laughs> it is hard. And, you know, it's a first world problem kind of it thing. Is. But when you're in it, it, it really is a withdrawal. It is. It's a real thing. You are coming down off of the high that you're used to maintaining. But anyways, you were really, really supportive of me. This person that I had barely met. And you really got me through that period of time. So, you know, I, I want to move on to you know, maybe other things later in this podcast. But before we leave this topic, there's a lot of parallelism between a running injury taking you away from your running and maybe what has happened in this last year with 2020 and the fact that the pandemic has placed many people in that situation where for different reasons, they are removed from their coping mechanisms, whether it's running, whether it's family, whether it's, you know, recreation of any kind, they don't have that healthy, relatively healthy way to cope. Um, What words of advice would you have for people that may find themselves in that situation during times of high stress? I think the best words of advice would be this too shall pass. But you have to have been through something and passed through it to be able to give that experience. 
So I think once you've been through a few things, you realize that do what you can. There's certain things you can't change. Try to focus elsewhere and just be easy on yourself and just simply move forward, relentless forward movement. We're lucky where we are that we weren't completely locked down like some people were in Europe. Some places it was really hard. So for for those people, I feel, you know, that I shouldn't even be giving advice. But yeah, try to move in some way. Well, yeah, even though you couldn't run, you were still in the pool, right? And you were exactly. Still- able to walk with your boot on. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And there was some, tr- it sounds like there was some trial and error with that, right? Like you tried the biking first. That seems like the next logical thing for a non-weight bearing. You're like, nope, this is not working for me. <laughs> what else have you got, Gary and Eric? <laughs> you know, and, and then you eventually found swimming. So it sounds to me like part of that relentless forward movement is being willing to try something, have it not work and still have the wherewithal to try something else. Is that fair to say? It is a little bit of desperation too. Like I just needed to get my fix somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I get that. I think all the runners would get that for yes. sure. So maybe you could tell us about a race or, or some specific moment that has taught you something really unexpected about yourself since you've been a runner. Since I've done a few long runs now, I'm finding that when things get tough, I can turn into the mother of the group. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll never leave a runner behind. It surprised me. I didn't think that even though I am a mother, <laughs> I didn't think I was the the motherly type, the one who would take someone who was down in the depths and wasn't going to finish. Um, I can't leave anyone behind. I will help them move on. Mm. And that's something that that has kind of surprised me. Absolutely. And what do you think it is about that? Do you think it's you know, taking the focus off of yourself, because presumably you're probably hurting in some way in that situation as well. But then when you look outward and try to help somebody else, it sort of takes your mind off of your own pain. I never really thought about it. It could be partially that it is good to focus on something else when things get tough. And I think almost, um, Maybe you're just a little raw, your heart gets, you know, more open when you're out there. I'm not quite sure. It might sound a little airy fairy, but uh, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Does this tend to happen when you don't have a pacer? You know, is it a bit of a camaraderie on the trail? I never thought about it that way, but you're right. With a pacer, you have that buddy, and so it's easier to block out other things. Whereas when you're on your own, you do tend to seek out other souls. That's that's true. Well, you know, I'm I'm thinking again, my my big perspective with you is fat dog or the framework I have. And you didn't have pacers at that race. They all fell through at the last minute, correct? Yeah. Yes, and correct. I remember you did I don't remember who, but I remember you did hook up with another racer for a lot of that race. Yes. In fact, I'm remembering now, I did see you on the trail. I did yeah. see you with that gentleman. Yes. That was my first experience exactly with that. And I just couldn't let him drop. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
this is a perfect segue into let's talk about inspiration and inspiring people. So you have been an inspiring person to many other people along the trail, but who has been your biggest inspiration in your running life? I would say that my biggest inspiration, honestly, is my coaches. Um, They are so much about fair play, about encouragement, about, you know, not whinging, getting on with it, working around problems. They see us all at the same level. You don't have to be an elite person. They're, They're very inspirational. There's nothing that they say that I don't respect. And they're very easy to follow, very easy to look up to. It sounds like you do have a tremendous relationship with your coaches. Is there anything that stands out to you, like any advice that they've given you over the years that has been hard to follow, but you're actually so glad you did now in retrospect? (laughs) You know, there's not much. That question is, is tricky because I can't think of much. I mean, my favorite runs aren't intervals doing the speed work, but I don't dread them. And every time I do them, I'm glad that I did. I'm building a bigger engine, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I can't really say there's anything. I, I don't question them. They do things in increments. They talk to me. We have a lot of feedback. If I want to do something, we figure out a way to do it. If it's too crazy, they'll tell me. They won't always sign off on everything, but I can't say there's a lot. I really just go with their flow. Well, it sounds like you won the jackpot with your coaches. That's that's what it's here, sounding like to me on this end. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Well, and you have some coaches that have, have really walked the walk. And yes. so they can talk the talk, right? And so when you know they know, when they know their shit, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's easier to follow their advice. But I think what you're also telling us is that they've really explained the why to you, right? You don't question because you understand why they're asking you to do a certain thing. Am I correct? Absolutely. I trust them yeah. implicitly. You know, yeah. when I, when the going gets tough and I get, you know, three weeks out before a big event, I usually feel, start to feel tired And I start to worry a little bit about, especially after my experience with Boston and the stress fracture, I start to think, oh, this is maybe how I felt before. And so we we kind of talk that out and try to figure out whether or not it's a real problem or if it's just normal stress load that builds up with the last big training block before you taper. And uh, so we've had so many conversations like that and it's just worked it out. It calms me down and always works out. It's a very good relationship. So Vicki, a lot of what you described as particularly your, um, you know, transition into longer distance running happened after the age of 50. Yes. And I mean, you have not slowed down. If anything, you've taken off, taken on bigger and bigger <laughs> chunks to chew when it comes to massive races. So I didn't actually give you a heads up on this, but I do want to talk a little bit about the fact that you are fairly strict vegan. Yes. And I think this is relevant. I would like to hear about how this has been both a benefit to you and how you perceive your ability to train and race, as well as potentially a challenge. I know when you were in Tour de Jean, um, you talked a bit about how 
finding good quality vegan protein was a bit of a challenge in Europe. Can you kind of, I know that's like a 10 part question, but can you talk to us a bit about your diet? Okay, sure I can. Um, I'm a vegan um, and I'm a vegan because I love animals. <laughs> Not because, uh, well, I didn't start doing it because of the nutritional benefits, although I am now a big believer. I recover very quickly. My energy levels are always the same. You know, as, as far as, you know, living and thriving as a strict vegan, I do well. But it does prevent, it does present some challenges for sure at certain events. Not so bad in North America, but in Italy, definitely. Because so much of the food is laced with cheese or little bits of meat protein. Mm-hmm. And when you're a strict vegan, that's tricky. I haven't eaten, I am sorry, I haven't raced in, in Europe, but I've been told to be prepared for meat and cheese at every aid station. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, meat, cheese, and also uh, like dry like cookies, <laughs> you can say, which I probably have a lot of butter in them. So that's very tricky. I tried to uh, scout that out before I went in, but they actually changed the menu at the aid station, standardized them, so there wasn't options that were easy for a vegan the year I went into it. Um, so when what I did you in, do? Uh, well, I, I used uh, Perpetuum as my base fuel, which works well for a few days. But once you get into days and days and days without other types of food, uh, it gets to be a real problem. I managed to get through, but it was difficult. That's all I can say. Next time I will, I will go into it with, um, with a lot more preparation. It'll probably be dehydrated camp food that can be, you know, quickly warmed up at the aid station so that I have, uh, plant protein and more sources that aren't loaded with cheese and with, with meat. So let's, okay, so that's the challenges of running as a vegan, particularly in Europe, but you mm-hmm. mentioned lack of inflammation, steady energy levels. What are the other benefits you found, you know, from a physical training standpoint of being vegan? I can't think of a disadvantage, honestly. I, every year I'm on a, on, you know, eating as a vegan, I just feel better. So many people I know are always switching from one diet to the other diet. They're going up in weight and down in weight. I am always the same. The only thing that I have to do is I have to make sure that I eat enough. I eat a lot. And after events, I tend to lose. So I just have to make sure that I just, you know, just bump up my calories. It's all about, you know, plant calories and just just eating across the rainbow, just lots of good grains and nuts and fruits and vegetables. And there's not a plant I don't like. <laughs> I say mushrooms because I've been seeing the, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> mushrooms on Facebook lately that you've been foraging and eating. We do. Our whole family is crazy for mushrooms and we just, we we're getting crazier about mushrooms as the years go on. <laughs> well, they look so amazing. Well, you know, this is not a, the first time this has come up on this podcast, especially with um, aging athletes and feeling amazing and not feeling old and creaky and sore in the morning. And yes, you, you've called me out. You've already called me out, Vicky, on this one. I am so close but I cannot call myself a vegan yet but I think I just need to kind of finally 
go down that path and, and see how I feel because, uh, you know, outside of the non-dietary reasons for being vegan, there's definitely some big benefits from the sounds of it. There is. Um, well, I, I think there is. And I would never have known it if had I not been going through this path. And you're right, like the aches and pains, I just don't have them. <laughs> right. Now, I think it is important that no one size fits all. Everybody's got different ways to eat and everybody has different things that work for them. And that's what I was going to say is yeah. I know that humans are omnivores and right. I think humans can thrive on anything, especially if it's whole foods, if it's, you know, not too processed. I think that there's many strokes for different folks. I don't want to preach. I definitely do it for the animals. All the other things are definitely benefits to me, maybe to the planet, definitely to the animals, but I'm not preaching to say that it's, it's the, you know, the only and the best and for everyone. Well, I think you're right. And I honestly think that if you're omnivore, if you're carnivore, if you're, you know, plant-based eater, like whatever you are, if you're eating real whole food, like you said, I honestly think it's very hard to overeat, or at least that's been my experience personally and my experience helping people with their with their diets. And I would be super curious to hear from you as a vegan, when you're running that much and you're running that far, do you find it hard to consume enough calories to support the energy output? I'm very careful with it. Um, I've really learned to, it sounds hokey because everybody says it, but I've really learned to listen to my body. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's true, you know, and I follow some basic rules. I make sure that I get good, healthy carb with a little bit of protein hit very soon, like within 15 minutes to a half an hour for sure. I've got that magic cocktail I have. And then within an hour, I always get some kind of protein, especially when the training load gets high. I really mm -hmm. pay attention to it. As soon as I feel that first sign of hunger, I make sure that I eat just little things like that. I've read a couple of good books. That's helped. You have to eat enough. You have to forget yeah. completely about all the diet craziness that's up <laughs> there and just make sure that your body gets the food that it needs. You use a lot of energy when you're training hard yeah. and uh, you need to be able to repair. Totally. It's like a part-time job. It right? is. You've got your, you've got your yes. training, which is a part-time job. And then you've got your eating and your, yeah. and I was actually going to ask you too about strength training. Like where does that fit into your picture? Because I know certainly personally as a master's athlete, that's become even more important to me since turning 40. So I just wonder where that uh, fits into things here. Absolutely. I'm just turned 60. And I started strength training a decade before I started to run competitively because I didn't run even a race until I was in my year 50. I did strength training because of uh, bone density. I'd read that that was really important. Uh, so I was going to the gym for a decade and doing my little runs around the block and skiing and doing other things like that. But uh, strength training is really important, I find, especially, as you say, as a, as a master's. So um, I go to the gym a couple times a week. Sometimes I go more, sometimes I go less, depending on what time of the year it is. Pure up strength and core training are very important. Mm -hmm. Well, and you live in a place where, you know, 
ski mowing, <laughs> skinning up a mountain is a pretty good form of strength training too, which I happen to know Vicky doesn't always use a ski lift when you're on the mountains, do you? That's right. Yeah. The last uh, couple of years I've got into ski touring, uh, backcountry skiing. And yes, it does. You're carrying large packs. You're carrying your body weight up through, you know, sometimes technical, oftentimes technical terrain. It's a big day. On Saturday, I was out and, you know, we left the house at 730 in the morning and we didn't get home till seven at night. And um, it was just like heading out into the mountains for 11 and a half hours. It's it's big. So you have to stay fit for that as well. It works both ways. It keeps you fit and you have to be fit for it. I think it's really important to highlight here the fact that life does not stop after the age of 50. Like Vicky is out there, like you just said, for 12 plus hours, you know, a day in your retirement and you're not knitting, not that knitting is a bad thing, but you, you are out there using your body probably more than you did when you were 30. I don't know. Um, Maybe, maybe not. And it's just so inspiring to me to say, you know what, the last half of a person's life does not have to be minimized and the shadow of the first half of a person's life when it comes to physical fitness, if you don't want it to be. So I want to circle back around Tour de Jean. Am I saying that right? Tour de Jean? That's excellent. <laughs> trying. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about this race. You you kind of alluded to the fact that, yes, it's it's a multi-day event. This is not something that happens in, in a single day. For our listeners that have no idea what this event is, can you give us a bit of a summary of what it is and then tell us about your experience there? Okay. It is um, a 356 kilometer race in the Italian Alps that starts and finishes in Cormier. There is a big valley with 26 mountain peaks that run in a circle around it. And basically the Tour de Jeans, or the TDG I'll call it, runs around that big circle loop over 26 peaks. You climb 101 thousand meters of feet I should say of elevation gain and the same in loss you have six and a half days to complete it there is no um, start or there is a start time but it's not like um, some events where you go 50 kilometers the first day and then everybody gathers up and spends the night in the tents and then the next morning they start again for the next 50 kilometers it's continuous For example, someone could finish the event in 100 hours, or they could finish by 150 hours, which is the cutoff time. So that's basically six and a half days. So it's big. It's beautiful. There's about 800 people that are lotteried into it. It's a very, just a huge adventure. (laughs) I loved it. Sounds like it. So of the 800 people who start, do you have any sense of how many finish? The year I was in it, there was 52% finish. So I I was one of the 52%. There was 150 hours is the finish. And I finished about an hour and a half underneath of that. So. Oh, good for you. That must have been a thrill. 
It was. It's. It was just such a big experience. I don't think you can get much bigger than that. But you know what, Carolyn? You, you highlighted exactly what ultra running is. It's not, what was your time? It was, did you actually finish? <laughs> oh, see, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning. It really is for me. I mean, of course, if you're one of the competitive athletes, I just, I'm so happy for them. It's fantastic to watch, you know, the people that are in the lead. It's very exciting watching the racehorses. But when you're actually in it yourself, it's so big. It's hard to explain. It sounds hokey. You know, people say, you know, it changed my life. And you're like, oh, get it, you know, (laughs) grab a life, really? And uh, (laughs) it does. It's crazy. You said you have some family in Italy. Did you have people that came out to support you and cheer for you during that race? Oh, the support was amazing, just on course. The actual race goes through all these little mountain towns and the the whole place stops for a week and the whole town comes out and they, you know, they set up what they call life bases. There's seven life bases where you can get aid and where you can um, sleep, even though the sleep strategy is, um, it's a little bit restrictive and a little bit complicated. uh, You know, they're, they're so warm, so welcoming. The whole town gets out and feeds you. The the school children come out and cheer you on. And I had my husband who's, you know, just so fantastic. I had two friends who flew to Italy from, from Vancouver. I had uh, my good friend, Michael, who paced me through my first 100 miler. We became good friends after that. He ran the event with me. And then he had crew as well. He had his friend and his wife there as well. So it was a really big group. Uh, Michael and I were, were very well supported. I, I remember following you along and wondering who was having more fun. All of your support crew was having a, a riot. <laughs> they were having a riot, just eating and drinking their way all through every day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you and that's the thing, you find volunteers that want to come crew you because it's a, it's one big party for for the whole event, except for the racer. It was just fantastic. That's all I can say. I would do it again in a heartbeat, and I am going to do it again. I was supposed to do it again this year, but uh, COVID knocked that out. So, sometime in the next three years, I'll be I'll be back. Well, the way that you talk about this is very like I can see you being inspirational to other people. I can see somebody that may have never thought about wanting to do something like this be intrigued about it just by being around you because that's the way that I'm feeling (laughs) right now. So I guess what I'm wondering, what do you wish people would understand better about ultra running and these experiences and expeditions that you've gone on? Like, what do you wish people would understand about it, particularly masters athletes? Or taking it up later in life. Yeah, it's it's it sounds hokey, but it's a real blessing. I feel so lucky to be able to do what I do. It's majestic. It's like throwing yourself into a big epic TV adventure, except you're really immersed in it. It's big. You're out there. There are some risks, but you're on your own. But you're supported, and you're feeling alive and there's just adrenaline everywhere. There's such highs. There's such lows. There's hallucinations. There's race nerves. There's this feeling of accomplishment at the end that lasts. You'll ride it for so long. Then there's a crash afterwards. It's a predictable pattern, but it's wonderful. It's a wonderful wave to ride. 
Yeah. And, and something you wouldn't, you wouldn't get that in your regular life. No. Like you just wouldn't. You have to no. kind of take on these big things in order to, like, as you say, get these very big highs and, and the lows <laughs> that come with them too. So. Yes. Well, you know, I, I want to grow up to be just like you, Vicki, seriously. Like, <laughs> you. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be one of those people like you, you yes, you do have probably not quite, no, maybe 15 years on me, which isn't a whole lot really in the grand scheme of things, but you're not slowing down. You're not sitting back reflecting on the glory days when you were 20. You are accelerating and living life to the fullest right now. And I just, I think that is so amazing. And you've been around long enough to have learned a few things in life. And you're now in a place where you can play. You can play hard and you can recover hard and think. And, and right. If you could have a billboard with like anything on it that you want to put out there to the world, what would it be right now? Oh my gosh. Um, That's a big question. I know. It's a really big question. Fall seven times, get up eight. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, this too shall pass. And I just really feel that, especially as I get older, that the benefits that I'm reaping are getting greater and greater. I feel so strong. I don't feel like I'm getting feeble. (laughs) Sometimes I look in the mirror and I go, you know, you are getting older, but I don't feel older. Sometimes I feel like I'm floating upstairs. I feel so strong. And I realize that not everyone is going through that. So I don't know how long it's going to last but I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. That's amazing. Thank you. So, so amazing. Um, I know you've been on so many more adventures. (laughs) Maybe we'll have to have you back and we'll go through them (laughs) one by one. (laughs) I think Turtle Dawn itself could be like a whole podcast. Oh, yeah. And then your whole self- self-designed wham tour this summer well did you want to touch on that because that was very fascinating from your your blog like everything was canceled this year so you just made up your own challenge do you want to give us nicole's notes of that i'd love to actually things for us have gone quite well with i mean i i feel bad even saying it but with covid so many things have gone so wrong for so many people But for us, once things settled down and we knew what it was, our lives are changing a bit. My husband just retired. I just retired. So when this happened, so much has changed in life. I thought, well, we'll just do different things, right? I'll go hiking for the summer, which I've never had a chance to do between, you know, work and training and kids and this and that and the other thing. So did a lot of like big mountain hiking, which I had never had a chance to do before. But once I did that, I really felt like I needed that goal of a big race. I love 100 milers, love them. So I thought, you know, the Wham 100 miler is not going through, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to somehow pull it together and do that route. The original Wham 100 miler that was, has never actually been able to be, to, to be pulled off because of either weather or grizzly in the area or different reasons. So I worked with coaches, Gary Robbins being the one who actually designed the original course and um, put together a plan to actually uh, map it out. I didn't know anything about digital navigation, so I had to, you know, go through that learning experience. I actually mapped it out on GPX and 
I pulled together some people who would, uh, you know, help uh, recon it, help, you know, hike it through. And, you know, there were some challenges because we started late in the year. It was a little tricky to find people. People were either not trained up because of COVID or they were overtrained because of COVID. They were so busy doing all the <laughs> virtual stuff. Or their families had taken them away on vacation because they could never keep runners around. You know, they're always running in events. They're like, oh, good, we can have you this summer to do, you know, things in our own mountains. So, but anyway, long and short, we managed to uh, pull it together and um, actually did the whole event. So over 48 hours, we did the entire uh, 100 mile, miles right in Whistler in our backyard. And it was um, quite an experience. We had some problems with um, smoke coming in at the end. And it was, it was amazing. It was another epic 100 miler. Love it. No regrets. So, so, you know, again, you and I can talk about this stuff and just think it's normal, but you talk about needing to find people to do this with you. Yeah. So people that don't realize, yeah, this is, you're in terrain that's fairly remote. This is 48 hours of continuous movement on your own two feet. So you did need to find pacers or people to go with you to do these events, particularly through the night, correct? Well, especially for this one, because yeah. there was no flagging. Yeah. It took us off trail for, for a good, oh, 30K of it through grizzly country. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, uh, I definitely need, again, needed needing people through the night, even though it's my own backyard, it's a wild backyard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is like, it's almost like your own Barclays. <laughs> it, kind of, but I mean, it's not, we can't, can't, can't quite compare no. it, but it was, it was different. There wasn't you know, aid stations and there wasn't, um, it was self-supported. I did have an in, in reach and I did have a, I mean, I always had a great someone with me. So, mm -hmm. so I, I feel very lucky that they gave up their time and their sleep and their energies to, to pull this off. So you had people with you for certain segments of it, but nobody did it the entire way with you. Yeah. So there, I broke it into, or we broke it into six natural sections. And in every section I had someone with me. So there was always two of us at every point along the way. That's smart. <laughs> and then um, fortunately the six breaks at every six base, my husband was able to pull up his truck and he was the aid station. So <laughs> shout out to your husband here. Like you have the world's best husband, you oh, know, yeah. I do. He's fantastic. He he really is to support me like this. I mean, sometimes he does get annoyed with me. It's true. He, we never have a Sunday morning together. I'm always gone, but he's he's fantastic. He brags about me all the time. That's a bit embarrassing, but he loves it. He loves a social life. He loves being one of the. I mean, I shouldn't say this. It might sound a bit not great, but he loves being one of the wives at the aid stations. You know. <laughs> He loves the ladies, so it's just perfect for him. <laughs> well, I believe that because if that's on when I'd come into the aid stations, he seemed to be having a pretty awesome time. But oh, yeah. but but yeah. it was always have you seen Vicky? Did you yeah. see her on the trail? How far back was she? Yeah. How is she doing? Is she okay? Like he's so focused on you. It's just so cute. Yeah, he's he's pretty amazing. Because you, you do need that support. You know, you are a whale, especially in the days when you have, 
you both got careers, you both got family, and then you're taken off to, you know, run every morning, run every night, run on weekends with your buddies. And, and he's, you know, he's back at the home front. So, you know, that's, that's, we all know that if we're runners, we know that that's a challenge as well. So I'm very fortunate. Gratitude all around to move, yes. to have the support, all of it. Yeah. Gratitude, gratitude. That's what makes it all worth it. All right. Well, you ready for a rapid fire? Go for it. I think we sent these two ahead of time and you've heard them on, on some of the other ones, but you have already mentioned a few mantras, but do you, can you pick a favorite mantra when you're out there running? What works for me well these days is focus, breathe, relentless forward movement. I use those because I tend to, after many, many hours, I tend to get distracted and too deep in my head. So I've really been doing a lot of meditation to bring myself back to the moment and focus on where I am and what I'm doing rather than losing myself. That's really wise. That's good. I love it. Okay. Number two, if you could transport anywhere in the world to run right now, where would it be? Whistler, hometown, probably Panorama Ridge on a quiet morning. You know what is so cool? And I know these are rapid fire. And we always spin off on these tangents. But we've had quite a few people mention their own backyards yes. when it comes to this question. And I just, I need to verbalize this out loud. Like I need to just say like, how cool is it when you're living in the place that you would wish to be in? Isn't that kind of the essence of living a good life? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. Whistler is a beautiful place. Ah, oh, love it. Are there any races on your bucket list? There are. Besides the Tour de Jeans, which I'm already in, um, in if not next year, the year after, um, my next goal is the Triple Crown of 200s. So that's 600 miles over eight weeks starting with the Bigfoot 200, then the Tahoe 200, then the Moab 240. So that's next on my bucket list. Oh, how am I not surprised? <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. Okay, I might just have to come crew for you for one of those. <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be so exciting. You, oh, you, can, you would rock that. Absolutely. I'm excited. As a matter of fact, I was even thinking about that this year, but I was too late. By the time I checked into it, it's already full up. Yeah, yeah. You'd be so, you know, people think we're crazy, but there's actually a whole lot of people that fight really hard to be crazy. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. There's too many lotteries these days, but that's just the way it is. <laughs> okay, so favorite running book or movie? Okay, I've got many books that I like, but... The basic one is Sports Nutrition for Endurance Athletes by Monique Ryan. That has given me so many benefits. And then, of course, there's Scott Jurek's books. Mm -hmm. And finally, I just watched a trail running film festival and um, out of uh, Washington State, and that was fantastic. So I could go on and on and on, but <laughs> I know it's rapid fire. <laughs> Oh, I miss that festival. Awesome. These questions could be the whole podcast, Kim. Never mind, never mind all the other questions we ask people, right? Out there, out there, we'll discuss this. Go ahead, Carol. Yeah. Final question. What is your favorite post-run indulgence? Definitely a vegan burger. 
anything but sugar. If it's like greasy and wholesome and big and fat, that's what I want. <laughs> You're so tired of sugar by that point, right? <laughs> oh, I, I swear I get sugar poisoning. Yeah, that's again, I have an idea for a whole other podcast on that. We'll have to talk about off air. Anyways, this has been, as I 100% expected it to be, great. I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. You've got such great stories and your passion and enthusiasm for the sport is absolutely infectious. So thank you for being here tonight. It's an honor. <laughs> so if people want to learn more about you, Vicki, where would you point them to? I have a blog and um, it is talesoftrails.me forward slash blog. Perfect. So we will link that up in the show notes for people who are interested. And yeah, I would encourage people to go check out this blog. It's super interesting. And there's lots of amazing stories. You're a great writer. And there's lots and lots of pictures to go with it. So it's it's a good read. Grab your favorite beverage and sit down with Vicky's blog. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Vicki, and uh, good luck with um, next season. Thank you very much, and I'm sure we'll chat many times on the trails in the future. <laughs> sure. Take care, ladies. Thank you very much. Bye.